everyone. Welcome back to the When We Speak podcast, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. Today, we are speaking to Yael Rosenstock Gonzalez. We're talking about sex positivity, pleasure, and what it means to give consent. She is a sex educator, sex coach, researcher, author, speaker, curriculum developer, and a workshop facilitator, which you all will hear a lot more about her company, Kaleidoscope Vibrations. I am so excited for you all to hear this conversation. She was such a pleasure to speak to. I've been so looking forward to this interview because sex is one of my number one topics that I want to discuss on my podcast. Um, My listeners know I'm here to liberate women from the shame and secrecy as it relates to trauma and sex, all of these things. And so if you will, before we get too deep into things, uh, can you just please tell listeners who you are and just however your bio comes to you? Sure. So I am a sex educator, sex coach, curriculum writer, and all the things. I am a dancer, which I think is super important insofar as like pleasure and sensuality for me. And I strive to support people in finding their pleasure, their confidence, their sense of self. And so part of that is also finding confidence in you. What are your identities? Where do you belong? And how do you find the people that belong with you? That is so beautiful. And we're going to get into that topic of pleasure because you know that stuck out to me big. So when I think about sex, I I think about myself and so many other women where this topic is. It's just something like we're not supposed to talk about. Whether we enjoy it, whether it's uncomfortable, whether it's, you know, something that we're just so confused about, we're not supposed to talk about it. Can you kind of speak to what was your introduction into kind of your own awareness of this is something that we should be talking about? This is something that that is important and that's worth discovering. Yeah, I guess I actually need to give credit to my mother. Um, My mother would talk to us about sex all the time. Apparently when I was like 11, I said to her, we were in the car and I was like, mom, can we talk about something that isn't sex? And I think it was very intentional on her part. She wanted us to understand that sex should be pleasurable. It should be positive. It should be loving. And while you can definitely have sex without love, but this idea that you should feel good in that space. And she is a, she is Catholic, right? She was married young and it's, and so it wasn't necessarily what, I don't know if that's what she was taught, but she wanted her daughters to have that. And so whenever I had a question, I remember in middle school, someone asked me, what's oral sex? And I was like, I don't know. So I went, mom, what's oral sex? And she told me no, no questions, no shame because access information was important. And from that point, I became that access for my friends. And then I had my own abusive relationship that involved sexual coercion. And I was ashamed. I felt alone. No one knew what was going on or happening because I was hiding it. And when I left that relationship, I became a reproductive rights educator and started working with young people so that they would know how to access things that they needed. And I spent years working with people who had been traumatized sexually repeatedly to understand all of that. And so I kind of just like ended up in the snowball of <laughs> career. And eventually I was like, well, now I'm in a much better place. I feel confident, I feel safe, I feel secure. I want to now concentrate instead of the trauma space on the, how do we have positive sexual encounters? How do we have feel safe and good and sexy? And that as a form of healing, as well as preventative work for trauma, 
right? If we're teaching people that it's about pleasure and care, then hopefully they're not going to end up having traumatic events. That's so powerful. And shout out to your mom, because in listening to you, it it just feels like she planted the seeds and then that liberated you from society shame and, and then from any shame that you're, you know, your friends, whatever they grew up with, all of that baggage, all of that stuff, you didn't have to deal with that. <laughs> and then here you are germinating seeds and so many others. I don't know. That's just how it came to me. I mean, even my, my 96 year old grandma who has passed away in her nursing home, she bought a copy of my book an intro guide to a sex positive you. And she had it hidden. Cause she's like, they're going to think something about me, but she bought that book. She's like, I support you. And like, you're doing important work, even if I don't understand it all. The time. Yes, that's awesome. What do you think are some of the, about like the shame and the secrecy around sex and, and how we decrease that? Yeah. So I think there's like lots of different things that come into play. And there's also a lot of different cultural connections. So I am Latina. And while my mother, who is the Puerto Rican parent, was very open about this, when I speak to other Latinas, the, the resounding message is that you don't talk about it. Mm. Right. And this varies, like you're going to find that this is true in families of all different groups, but also I think there's, there, it's important to name the cultural aspects, right? Like what are we taught in our communities and there is this idea that sex is for certain relationships. It's between certain people. And often that's marriage if you are in the Latin community. Um, and it's, and you're not like, again, I, so I'm focused on Latin because it's part of my research, but this idea that men are supposed to have knowledge yeah. in heterosexual encounters and women are supposed to be like, I don't know what to do. And then for many religious communities, you're supposed to be completely unaware of what you're supposed to do. And then on the night of your wedding, all of a sudden, God is supposed to maybe send this message to you. And so now you know what, how to engage. So I think there's lots of push around the idea of purity, the false understanding, like uh, the creation of the term virginity and the fact that it has no consistent definition, I think is quite telling. Um, <laughs> but this idea of like your worth tied to your sex. And I know in my college students, they talk about body count and the idea that, well, you're supposed to have sex as young women, but not too much sex. Like you're supposed to be experienced and knowledgeable, but not too experienced and knowledgeable. And the flip side being that men are supposed to have sex a lot with lots of different people so that they are, they have that power, right? The power of knowledge. And so I think shame stems from all of these things, right? False senses yeah. of what is a good person, what makes a good wife right. or a, um, a virtuous individual. Everything that you just said, there's so much there. The, the expectation that, first of all, there is no really clear cut. If we really look at history, the Bible, as it relates to virginity, that whole topic, I, I feel like we need another podcast episode just to, for me, just to call out the hypocrisy but this expectation, just as you said, that we're supposed to be these virtuous women, we're supposed to be pure, the patriarchal definitions, white supremacist definitions of what that, that looks like. But when you get married, you're supposed to know all things. Having no experience with it, and there's a lot of shame in even how we educate ourselves. Can we read books? Can we watch movies? Are we allowed to watch sex scenes on screen? Are we allowed to 
um, explore our own bodies and figure out what we want and what we like and what feels good. We're not, but then when we get married, we're supposed to just know and to, to just embody this just being a sex goddess all of a sudden. And for a lot of women, that's a heavy weight and we don't talk enough about it. No, it, no it, and it leads actually like vaginismus is more, is a fairly common issue in that like the vaginal walls constrict making penetration painful. So like penetration of anything, like even a tampon, let's say. And so that happens though, when you're telling people like, this is really important. This is a really big deal. Sex is penetration, which sex is many things, penetration only being one of them. And so you hype people up with this, like, you don't get to have information. And also this is super important and taboo and like everything depends upon this, that literally the body freaks out and says no entrance here. Right. And so like, that's so fascinating to me. It just reminded me, I, I, well, I don't think it's in production anymore, but I used to watch Eve Ensler's vagina monologues and it reminded me of one of the monologues in her play, you know, just <laughs> related to no entry, can't get in, stop. <laughs> and I just love the exactly, dialogues. So I'm in good company. And again, that's something that we don't talk about, how we are, what's happening in our bodies in the moment. Because if, if we're bringing in all of, the, the guilt and the shame in society's messages and then ignorance <laughs> and being uncomfortable with our own bodies and then not really sure we're not present and all of these things, then tell me what that term is again, vagin... Vaginismus. Vaginismus. That's my first time hearing that. And now I'm going to go and research all of that. Yeah. Your brain basically tells your vagina to clench. Yeah. And so we won't get into that deeply, but it's also like very scary for folks who try and treat it because lots of people misunderstand. And it is a something that your brain is doing, right? Your mind is doing it and people will treat it by like trying to force objects into the body. And that just causes yeah. it to get worse because the whole point is that you're scared of pain. Oh. So anyway, yeah. but you also brought up self-pleasure, right? And like, you'd think, okay, well, you can't have sex with others. You might as well have sex with yourself, except that I think again, with in heterosexual dynamics, there's this like, well, no, he's supposed to give me pleasure, right? Like it's his job. He's in charge of my orgasm. And you're not like, you don't take the time to get to know yourself. Like I, when I lead workshops about this, I ask, how do you feel about masturbation? One of the options is ill. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because some people feel that way. They're like, I'm not going to touch myself. That's, that's his job. And so I think that that also creates the sense of shame that like, you're not supposed to engage in masturbation. It is a boy's thing. Right. And, and there, are, there is a certain population of women who have never looked down there, have never touched down there. And they, they just, they're so unaware and so unfamiliar with their own bodies. And you're exactly right. They've kind of said, here, here's, here's my body and you do what you want with it or whatever you're supposed to do with it. And I'm, I'm just here for you. My body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. That is such a powerful statement. Yes, I am here for you. And that's such a, pro I'd say a big problem with why people aren't experiencing pleasure is that women will see themselves as a tool and are seen sometimes as a tool rather than as an active member. Are there any others, as we're even talking about barriers to women, I think being able to orgasm, even knowing what that is, being able to, to own their own sexuality and femininity, 
Um, are there any other barriers that come to mind for you as to barriers to women like finding what gives them pleasure or even knowing what that means? So I'd say that like a lot of people just don't know, like, as you said, they don't know their body. They haven't looked, they haven't seen, they haven't been taught. I went viral on TikTok because I labeled a vulva and a vulva is the part that you can see, right? The vagina is inside and the vulva is the outside. And I, I went viral because I labeled, I did an anatomy lesson. <laughs> and so many people didn't know. They're like, I have one of these and I didn't know that that's what the pieces were. And so I think that that is a huge issue. And then for women with vulvas and vaginas, there is this stigma around scent and taste that I comes up a lot in people not feeling like they can engage. Like they don't want to receive oral sex because they're like, well, you wouldn't want to taste that. It's like, are you going down on someone else? Are you, are you sucking someone's dick? Like, that is, you are also in the genital region. <laughs> like, why is yours bad and theirs isn't? Right. Um, and so like that kind of stuff. And when I did a workshop last night around masturbation and pleasure, and I talked about, it's not just the, so the clitoris is the main power uh, sense place of pleasure. And people sometimes think that they're supposed to orgasm through vaginal sex, right? Through penetration. And realistically, most people with vulvas are not going to, uh, orgasm that way. So like, that's a big thing, right? Not understanding how you can orgasm. But the other thing is the clitoris is three to seven inches erect. It's just internal. And so we don't see it. And that means it's like lining up the labia, the lips of the vulva. And so you can squeeze and scratch and play with the lips and you can play with the mound. And there's all these different areas, but People often just think if they do know something, they know the clit and they go straight for that. And it's limiting. I am going to be following you on TikTok. I'm shocked kind of that, that they didn't know the parts of their vagina. Like that's literally a part of you. That's a part of the problem is parents not having early conversations. This is your body. This is your vagina. Let me tell you, half of the comments are people angry with me mm -hmm. saying, this is not appropriate. This is a kid's app. And I'm like, first off, this app's for 13 and up. Second, I got my period at 11. Some kids are getting their period at eight. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that people shouldn't know their own bodies? And they're like, well, what about the, the, you know, the kids with penises? And I'm like, what's going to happen? There are violent things everywhere. And you're concerned with someone being able to label a sketch it's not even, well, I didn't take a picture of a vulva. I think it is a sketch, right? you know, but there was so much pushback from people saying like, this is bad for children. And this idea that body knowledge, just knowing your body is somehow dangerous or wrong is I think really at the heart of this issue that we sexualize everything yes. and sex is great, but it's not everything. Bodies are just bodies. Bodies are just bodies and there's nothing wrong for anybody listening with using correct anatomical language. Fear of a name, right? Fear. Fear, like, yeah. It is just a word. It's not a bad word, right? There's a, this exercise that people do where you name body parts and you, you challenge people. Can you say the word penis, vulva, vagina, breasts, anus, as loud as you can say elbow, nose. Right. Um, Dr. Lex uh, the sex doc, Lex sex doc on Instagram has a book and I'm going to butcher the name, but like, here is your eyes. Here is your nose. Here is your toes. And mm -hmm. here is your, but one of the words is vulva, I think. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I don't know which one it is, mm -hmm. but basically it's a book about body parts and it includes the genitals. Mm -hmm. And she's also gotten like one of her reviews on, on Amazon was like, I bet she could find a better use of her time. And it's like, no, this is a beautiful use of time. It's telling children that there's nothing shameful about your body. 
which leads to adults feeling like there's nothing shameful about their bodies. Absolutely. Absolutely. So even as we, and we weren't even supposed to talk about children and, and this, kind of, but, but now that I'm on the topic, what is just one recommendation you have for parents who are uncomfortable with the topic of sex and correct anatomical language? You should go check out Sex Positive Families. It is run by Melissa, who is a parent of, I think, three now teenagers, and they do a beautiful job. They have so many resources on their site, on their Instagram that talks about like age by age, what kinds of questions and topics and how do you bring things up? There's some Spanish options. There's options around like children with autism. And so I would say like educate yourself in that way, but also you don't want to replicate the same baggage that you've got, right? And so children will touch themselves. You don't want to teach them that touching themselves is wrong. What you want to teach them is we don't do it in public because that's non-consensual. Everyone else in this space didn't consent to see you touch yourself. But if you're in the bathroom, if you're in your bedroom, you get to do that because it's your body and only you get to do that. You have to give permission to other people to touch, right? So like that kind of thing where we're not teaching kids to feel ashamed, we're teaching kids boundaries, limits, and how to responsibly have conversations. And consent, early conversations about consent, that just kind of morphed into that. When they know, oh, this is my body and and it's okay for me to touch in an appropriate place, just like you said, but if anyone else touches you in those same places, this is what you do. This is how you report it. This is you tell someone, a trusted adult, whatever. And so having these conversations are life saving. I used to nanny and I used to also work at a daycare and I would like, there was, there are children who don't care, right? Like they don't mind. They have no qualms about their bodies and you can touch them and pamper them, whatever. But I had some kids who, when I would change their diapers, I would talk them through it. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to take off your diaper now. Cause it's wet. You know, like once we're done, I can put you back down. I'm going to wipe you now to make sure you're clean. Right. Because they needed that sort of assurance because they already had a fear or qualm about being touched and they deserved that I take care of that in a respectful way, right? Like most people are like, they're a child, I'm just gonna do it. It's like, no, when you do not pay attention to a child telling you that they're asking for more safety and more verbalization, you're telling them that they don't matter, that their bodily autonomy doesn't matter, that consent doesn't matter. So it's so important to let kids know that they have choices, to give them opportunity to make decisions and to feel comfortable. And even with the touching yourself, like one of the babies loved to touch herself. And one of the things I said was, yeah, you can totally play after I take the caca out, right? Like after I've wiped away the caca, you get to play. Whatever you want to do when you're all clean. (laughs) And that teaches them again, right? It's okay to explore and there are boundaries and consent is important. Like I'm asking for your consent to do something because your consent matters. That's it. Your consent matters. And if they, they learn that at an early age, then when we talk about uh, intimate relationships, adult relationships, even teenage relationships, that foundation that's still, that's there. And they understand that I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do. What a world that would be. How much trauma would be avoided? And so I want to ask just kind of as, as we're moving into this topic of, of consent, how do we introduce the topic of consent in our relationships. So a big thing that I think is a problem is that we as adults tend to understand consent as a sexual uh, conversation, right? That you are giving permission to or to not have someone touch your body or do things to your body. And consent is so much more than that, which is why when people are like, no, you can't teach these things to children. I'm like, what, why? (laughs) 
So the five things that I teach my students is that consent around or boundaries around time, around material objects, around the physical, around your emotional or mental capacities. Oh, there's one more, but I'm not going to remember this exact moment. But basically you can speak with a partner and say, just start stating boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. And being aware that you are in fact engaging in consent and non-consent. Like if you ask someone out, them saying yes or no is them practicing consent. If you go to a restaurant and someone starts to order for you, you saying yes or no is practicing consent or someone saying, can I order for you? I remember when I was writing my book, I kissed around like four people in that year or in the half year or whatever. And I noticed that all of them asked my permission to kiss me, which I thought was incredible. I was like, huh, now that I'm paying attention, that happened. And people always say, well, that's, it's not romantic or what have you. And I was like, no, it was so empowering to have someone ask, can I kiss you? Because it meant that I now got to say yes or no. And we moved on knowing that we were both comfortable with what was happening. And I think that like starting to ask those simpler questions and to do those check-ins, it's not, you can have an explicit conversation about how important consent is, but I think you need to give examples of what that looks like. And so So a time, right? Someone might come to you and be like, I want to tell you about this thing. It's really bothering me. Great. I don't have the capacity right now, right? I don't, (laughs) my cup is not full. Can we talk about this tomorrow when I'm feeling better, right? That is an example of navigating boundaries and engaging in consent. My sister and I like to borrow each other's clothing. We made a rule when we were younger. The person who bought the item gets to wear it first, right? That was a boundary and a consent thing that we navigated. Like, yes, you can borrow my clothes, but I get to wear it first because you stain things. (laughs) All right. And so like these kinds of conversations and opening it up to be more than that, you don't always have to say yes. You don't always have to be available. You don't like, if you need space, ask for space. And so making sure that consent is something that is across your relationship and not just about like, can I do this thing to you that I saw in porn? So what I hear you say is if you're practicing healthy boundaries, which creates healthy relationships, just in your everyday life, when it comes to sex, when it comes to relationships, platonic or romantic relationships, then it's easier. And I'll even take that even further. If you don't understand boundaries and consent in your relationships and explicitly regarding sex, then that's a pretty good indication that your life is in disarray in other parts and other areas. 100%. I know some, so many people struggle with boundaries, right? Like this is often revolutionary to go through and start to name these things for people because they're not used to saying, well, I deserve to have space. I deserve to have time. I deserve to not have someone intruding, right? That it's just not something that many of us are used to. Yeah. Even in terms of boundaries, telling someone this is not, you you can't talk to me like this, or you hurt my feelings, or this is how this action made me feel, or this experience made me feel. If you're unable to have that conversation and to kind of advocate and speak up in that way, it's really hard to do it in more deeply personal and intimate moments. And then there's the other thing about like types of conversations and types of communication. And so some folks, it would be, it's horrifying and it's very difficult to actually name the things they need in the moment that they need it, right? We know about um, fight, flight, and freeze responses is also fawn. Mm-hmm. which means that like folks end up submitting to the thing and makes it, it looks like they're consenting. And so if you are going to be engaged with someone new and sexually, something that I always recommend is being clear beforehand, what are your tells, right? So if you know that you freeze in response to something that makes you feel scared or uncomfortable, then that's useful information to share and say, hey, if I get a little stiff, 
if I stop responding, if like I go silent, like I am not okay. And you need to stop. That is me communicating to you that I am not consenting, but I can't use my words, right? Or having like, I, I'm a double tapper. I never took karate. Like I took a couple of days, but like I literally just tap people out. I'm just like, mm, that hurts. Like, mm, stop that. Right. <laughs> and I share, like if I double tap you, it's probably me saying you need to stop. And so I need you to stop because I have communicated even if I didn't use my words. Yes. And even the fawn, right? Like if you know that you fawn, which will look like consent, then you can say, I need you to ask me things like, is this pleasurable? Is this fun? Should I keep going? Right. And that way you might feel more comfortable with yes, no questions that are easy to respond to instead of what do you want me to do, which can feel very nerve wracking for some people, but creating prompts in advance that, you know, you'll be able to respond to. So you can maintain safety and asking that of your partner too, asking them, what is it that they need to communicate safely? Having prompts to say, is this okay? Does this hurt? Does this feel good? Do you want more? Do we need to change position? Regarding, you know, fawning, then it kind of makes me think about, you know, prior to recording, I talked about or mentioned that I wanted to talk about how sometimes we disassociate during intercourse. Uh, Can you speak to to that? Just whatever you want to share on how we, why disassociation happens and, and what we can do in that moment. So this is not my expertise level. I know a little bit, but it's not like what I work with. So part of it is that if folks have experienced trauma, they will sometimes leave their bodies because being in their bodies will make them relive their trauma. And so they're seeking to be out of it. If you are in a, if you are in a relationship that is abusive, that is very common, right? You leave, you check out. If you are engaged in sex work and it is not something that is positive for you, And it's also normal to check out, but you can also end up checking out with people that you love and are happy with and generally feel safe with because of past experiences. The other reason you might, and and I've heard people describe it as like floating above their own, uh, above the scene and looking down at the people having sex, but not recognizing themselves necessarily, or just watching themselves. And part of that can be a preoccupation with how you look, how you smell, how you taste, right? Like, how do I look from this angle? Like, what do they think of me? And so that sort of anxiety around performance can be really debilitating and can cause. And then also, right, it's a stereotype, but many women are used to doing a lot of things and multitasking. And so if you feel like there are errands that weren't done, or you forgot to make a list, you might start doing that in your head and that'll, you won't be necessarily disassociating, but you will start to leave the sexual interaction and not be present. And so I think that there's different things you can do if you are in an abusive relationship, obviously like you don't want to come back. I'm not actually suggesting that you try and go back into that body if and when you are ready seeking support to leave. But if you are instead anxious around you, then it's about building confidence, right? Um, there's a quote from Julia Roberts in Eat, Pray, Love. And I, someone just brought this up because they were mentioning that they gained weight during COVID. And she says, have you ever had anyone leave the room when you took your clothing off? Right? Like presumably if you're with someone and they've seen you, right? They've seen you, you got clothes on, but they've seen you more or less. Like people know that there is cellulite and rolls underneath clothing. And so when you take off your clothing, if they're not expecting cellulite and rolls for most people, like, I don't know what they're expecting, but realistically, they're not going to walk out. 
Right. And if you're with someone who would walk out, then that is someone you got to walk out on because that is a bullshit person and they do not deserve your time. But realistically, that's not going to happen. People are with you. They already find you attractive. They're already excited to be with you. And so letting go of this, like I, I used to be that person. I used to cover my butt because I was terrified of people seeing my cellulite. And I was born with this. I was teeny tiny skinny, but I got a big butt and big butts come with cellulite. Um, and I would rap and like, let's be real. They were having sex with me. They see my butt. They see my cellulite. Like, my partner's seen all my angles. He takes pictures and he's like, oh, you're so beautiful. And I'm like, why? What? what? That's not a beautiful picture. But he's like, oh, you're so beautiful. Believe, right? Believe them. It's You don't need to perform your body. You do not need to suck in your stomach while having sex so that you're not comfortable. Like, please just be in your body. And that is like work, right? It's I'm not saying that today you're going to wake up and be like, oh my God, I'm always so gorgeous and fabulous because that's not realistic and it's an unfair expectation to put on people. But there are things that you can do to build towards that. And I do have an article about building intimacy with self that is free for folks to look at as well as some like some freebies on my website if anyone's interested. Yeah, I am. I'm going to be getting all of your resources and taking, we're going to talk about your courses later. I'm going to be involved in all of that. Whoever you're with, your partner, they're not surprised. And most likely they love, hopefully you're in a relationship where they love and are not surprised by your dimples, by your cellulite, by your moles, by your creases, your folds, whatever's there. If you got a big butt, you got no butt, they're, they're with you for you and they love you and nothing about you. Even if you've got some scarring uh, due to surgeries and different things, they are not surprised. So turn the lights on, keep them off, take the photos, <laughs> get comfortable. They know your body. They're familiar with it. It's okay. And also... If you know that you need to hear that, say so. Yes. You get to ask for that. You get to say, I don't always feel so attractive. And so I, when it is real for you, I need you to tell me that you find me attractive. I need you to remind me that this is important for you. That actually reminds me, another thing that I struggle with is like time to orgasm, right? How long it takes to orgasm. And for lots of folks with vulvas and vaginas, it can take longer than it does for many people with penises. And so there can be like a, a sense of like, oh my God, why is this? Why am I still here? I'm, I'm making them work too hard. Like, oh no. And so I asked my partners now, tell me I'm having fun. I could do this forever. You taste so good. You smell so good. And those affirmations so that I don't feel self-conscious in the moment, right? And that's, a, you get to ask because people want to help you feel the good that you want to feel if they care about you. I think that you're in my mind because as you were speaking earlier, I wrote down, talk about orgasm. Can you speak to uh, this topic of, of women who maybe they never orgasm, they've never had an orgasm in their life, or they've never orgasmed without the use of toys. Um, and so they don't understand or know what that's like or how to do that. Any Anything that you want to discuss that comes to mind for you or any resources? Well, that last one, never orgasm without toys. So what? Okay. It's assistive technology. Like let it assist you. <laughs> What's so bad about that? Now, if you want to learn to orgasm other ways, for sure, there are methods and you can. Um, it's just your body is used to orgasming in a, through this method. And so it might take some practice, but basically it's masturbating. And actually last night I talked about like getting your whole body involved in your masturbation so that like your legs are excited and your breasts are excited and like you're touching your own ears and you're just creating a sensual experience. Maybe you have vanilla candles, right? Like make it so that your whole body's involved and slowly seduce yourself. That might help you with the transition from a vibrator or suction toy or what have you to other things like hands and tongues. But yeah, there's nothing wrong. Just bring your toys with you when you have sex with other people, yeah. right? I mean, don't, don't, I think it's important to let folks know that you are using toys because some people like are, 
toys in themselves are taboo. I don't think they should be, but they are. Yeah. And it might frighten someone. Mm-hmm. So I think consent's important there and saying like, hey, I'm going to bring my toy because it helps me have a great orgasm just so they know. And then use it because there's nothing wrong with that. So don't let anyone shame you into thinking there's something wrong with you. Insofar as being pre-orgasmic, right? You haven't had an orgasm yet. Um, that is another article that I will be coming out with soon once they publish it. But basically, I think that there's multiple reasons why this happens. One is like fear of what the body is doing, a concern around like all the things that we already talked about, right? Time and scent and what have you. And so you're you're in your mind, like that sort of the voyeur of the of experience and not being present. So wanting to practice like being present techniques. Also just the pressure that orgasm is the goal can keep you from orgasming. And then thinking about like what it is that you're supposed to do in an interaction. And so some people are like, oh, we'll have, for example, if I'm not present, I will try and turn my non-present mind towards fantasy and I will start fantasizing, even if I'm with someone else, right? Because the fantasy will help me focus back on the sensations in my body and will stop whatever else is going on in my brain. And so giving yourself permission to fantasize when you're alone or with others, you can also be using erotica or you know, what visual porn written por- uh, erotica so that you can help your mind get into the set. And also the reminder that people, not all, but lots of people with vulvas take longer to get into a sexual mindset than the narrative that we're used to. So it's not, most people aren't spontaneously aroused. And by spontaneous, I mean like, oh, you want to have sex? Boom, I'm excited. That's just not realistic. But instead it might take 20 or 45 minutes of pre-genital, pre-overtly sexual experiences to get excited. So I sometimes recommend to people like being naked for a while and like walking around naked, feeling up your own body, letting someone else touch you, but not the genitals, right? Just the rest of your body. So you start to feel like sense everywhere because skin is your biggest sexual organ, right? And the brain is the biggest muscle, but like the skin is this biggest sexual organ. And so eliciting that, uh, maybe sending sexy texts or photos, having your partner describe what they want to do to you. These are all things that you can do so that your mind starts to get into the mindset of it. Because if you start touching before you are aroused, it's going to take longer. It's going to feel exhausting. You're going to get like, why isn't this working? Like I love when I have sex that like the, the first touch, I'm already like begging for that to happen. Because when I'm begging for that to happen, my orgasm is more likely to occur um, in, a quick, in a quicker time, right? Whereas if I start off with gentle touch, we could be there all day if I wasn't already aroused. <laughs> so it goes back to foreplay and pleasure starting outside of the bedroom. Yeah. Because for me, foreplay is all that mental stuff, right? Because sex is the kissing, the touching, the licking, like that's sex for me. Right. And so foreplay is all that like pre- touch and including accessing pleasure through the five senses that's how i heard that's what i heard you say that's one of my workshops (laughs) arousal through the five senses yes i am so excited about that the other thing i learned late in life that orgasms are my responsibility for my daughter who is 20 that is a message that i have that she is not please don't just kind of lie there and just wait on this other person To do this thing, you have to be a part of it and know what feels good to you. And it's your responsibility. You you share in that. Can you speak to that a little more? Well, I think the last thing that you just said, right? You share in that. And so I agree that um, we are responsible for orgasms and that like often people don't ask for that. And so there's this assumption about when sex ends and how it ends and like, did this thing happen? And It is our responsibility as individuals in a sexual encounter to advocate for our, for our pleasure. And also ideally the people or person that you're with is also excited 
to participate in your pleasure, right? And to help you find that experience. And so people often say like, oh, you need to know your own body before you're in a relationship. And I say, I call bullshit, right? Lots of people learn about their bodies through having partners who are good at helping them find those pleasure points. And there is nothing wrong with that. And also you do get to do some self-exploration. You get to figure out what you want and you get to ask. It is incredible and liberating to name. Like someone's going down on you and you want a little bit more pressure. You get to say more pressure, right? Someone's fingering you and you want more fingers. You get to say more fingers, right? And that's like what I mean by, it's not saying that, I don't think anyone's saying you have to like masturbate yourself in sex, which you can do also, right? But it's saying you are the driver if you want to be. And if something isn't ideal, and don't even get me started, the the amount of people, the amount of women, in particular women who experience pain during sex and don't say anything, it is horrible. And so you get to say, and you should say like that hurts, stop. Or it would feel so amazing if you did blank, or I've been waiting all day to feel your tongue on blank, or like wet your finger and like stick that, you know, lubricate your finger and stick that baby in my butt. Like say what you want. Because that is how you get your pleasure. And if you're not doing that, then really what many women, what we're doing is just kind of performing a chore, lying there like a mannequin. I'm just here. So speaking up. And I think part of it is that this um, myth around mind reading, right? That good sexual partners will just know what the other person wants. And sure, there's like an element of like, I've learned your body. I know that you like certain things. And also why leave it to mind reading? Let them do whatever they're doing. But if you know you want something else or you want something additional, just say it because there's no shame in not being able to read minds. Most like we just don't have that capacity. Regarding pleasure, how do we practice How do we discuss pleasure? How do we practice pleasure just in our day-to-day lives? So pleasure is just like consent, so much more than sex. So perhaps the, you really love your coffee in the morning. I don't know about you, but I like the smell of coffee. And so spend 30 seconds smelling your coffee, right? Letting yourself feel the, like the thing that, that scent that brings joy before you drink it. That is like an act of pleasure. I mean, drinking your coffee because you like it is already an act of pleasure, but like really sitting with it is one. I love to dance. And so anytime I give myself the opportunity to take a dance break, like I just feel so joyful and that's a pleasure practice. Um, I love food. And so I like my food to taste good, ideally great, right? (laughs) And so getting to enjoy the savoring of those things. Um, When we talk about, in, in my programming, when I talk about like body love, I think it's important to think of that kind of stuff beyond the aesthetic. And so I remind people like, what do you like? Do you like hiking? Because then you can love your legs for their bringing you up mountains, right? Do you love sunsets? Then you can thank your eyes because you're able to see the sunset. And these are things that we take for granted and that different people have different likes and different people have different access, right? Some people don't have vision or don't have legs that can walk. And so it's being aware of the things that you enjoy and the way that your body and the senses allow you to participate in those things that you enjoy can really help center this like pleasure framework. Which attaches to the course that you have coming out. I think you said about the five senses. So that's one of my workshops. I do have, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I do have, and that one's in person because I get people blindfolded and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. So (laughs) that one is its own thing, but I do have a pleasure practices. I want to build up like a whole series, but the first one is called pleasure practice, body connections. And right now I got a wait list. And then once um, the folks on the wait list will help me determine what is that one month of group coaching going to look like? Cause I got dozens 
of activities and ideas, but I want to create something that is going to be responsive to the folks who are in the space's needs. And yeah, so it'll be one month. We're going to choose those topics soon, and then it will be open for the public to join. Wonderful. And then can we, if we can kind of segue to a couple of other, they're kind of related, but, but they're not so much. I want to talk about community, communities that you're a part of and communities. How do we build? How do we find, not build, but how do we find our own community in terms of culture, race, gender, sexuality, and interest? Yeah. So this is huge for me. I am a white presenting, white passing um, Latina, which means that my easiest example of what that means is that I could have children with a white person and my kids might not be white. Right. And so for me growing up, I felt really inadequate. Like I didn't count. I was like, oh, I was born in the U.S. I look the way I do. I thought when I was little, little, I didn't speak Spanish well. Now I speak it fluently. And so there are all these ways that I didn't feel like I counted. I was queer, but I hadn't had sex with anyone who wasn't a cis dude. Uh, a cisgender man is a man who was assigned male at birth and still identifies that way. And so, and I was, and I'm Jewish, but my mother's Catholic. And so this idea that like, I don't count as a real Jew. So there are all these ways I didn't feel like I belonged. And it took me having, I needed to find confidence in me. I needed to say, I do count. I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to prove to anyone else that I am who I am and the communities I belong in. And that made a huge difference in my being able to find community that felt validating. And also for me, it's important to find those intersections. So I like... I looked for Jews of color because I wanted to be in community spaces that were validating of the people in my life and of my religion. And when I went to an, a predominantly white institution right now for my PhD, the first place I visited was La Casa, right? The Latin house, because I wanted to find people that would have shared cultural values. And I went to the Latinx group, which was queer Latin people. And so I think it's important to remember that we are not silos, right? Whatever your identities are, like woman, trans, man, like... Black, Asian, that you are also other things and that often communities can feel isolating or not validating because they center one identity and then your other identities not only might not be valued, but might be rejected. And so it's important to look for folks who share those intersections so that you feel good in all the things that you hold. And so trying to say, okay, I'm, poly I'm polyamorous, so I might want to be in sex positive spaces that recognize polyamory and that don't fetishize people of color not because I'm a person of color, but because I don't want to be around people like that. <laughs> and so identifying your values, identifying your intersections and figuring out what is it that you want to see represented in those, in the spaces that you find community with. I think that in this day and age, there's a variety of ways to find community. You can find it through your local meetup groups. You can find it through virtual meetup groups because we're still in a pandemic. And so groups that you weren't allowed to join because maybe you live in New York and this group is in Denver. Well, now everybody's meeting virtually. It's easy. You can go to book signings virtually. You can workshops, um, conferences. TikTok has a whole community all on its own, <laughs> especially if you're listening and you are part of the queer community. Huge queer uh, community on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, so many events via Zoom. So community, you, you have to do a bit of work, but it's not difficult to find your people. I mean, not, not if you're willing to sometimes spend money or or just the investment of time to participate. Um, yes, yeah. because you are beautiful, wonderful, worthy, and also you're not a special snowflake. There are other people like you. <laughs> <Say that again. laughs> you are beautiful and worthy and 
and special, but you're not a completely special snowflake because there are other people like you. Yes. I don't mean that they're exactly like you, but you go and find yes. people that you vibe with that get you that you don't need to explain your life stories to because they've already had similar stories and that they'll be like me too. And you can build off of that because it is exhausting to have to explain some something to someone that is your daily life, right? That is why people of color speak to one another. That is why women yeah. stick together. That's why trans folks talk to one another because you don't yeah. want to have to explain the things that are constantly true for you. And also there's, there are just more people like, right? There's yeah. now like mixed race groups specifically. Like what is it like to yeah. be multi or ethnic racial and what have you? So I, I also wanted to ask you what you, you know, just what can you share for women who struggle with just being their authentic self? Uh, how can they kind of practice that and inhabit that? Yeah, I feel like there's an assumption that people are not their authentic selves. I've been to so many workshops where like, you know, we, what will it take or how can we support you in being you? And I'm like, I don't need support in that. <laughs> I am everywhere. And also there's a level in my case of privilege, right? Like I come to spaces with the knowledge that like, if you don't want me here, I don't need to be here, right? I don't want to be in a space that does not want me, that does not value me. And I'm in a situation where I have the power to like not feel fear, or retribution about it. And so I want to claim that and recognize that and also say, we get to, in at least in some aspects of your life, maybe in your job that is helping you survive, you can't be you. And I am sorry if that is the case. And that is terrible. Although I've spoken to enough people to know that sometimes people feel like they can't be them, right? But that's not to say that they can't be them, but that they've chosen not to be them because they are fearful of it, but not because they actually think that they'll lose their job or they'll lose. It's just like this other thing that's gnawing in the head. And so I would say, Take, take notes and say, am I not showing up as me because I think I might lose my job because I might lose people that are important to me that I don't want to lose and that I value? Or is it, I might lose people that actually don't belong in my life. I might feel a little bit uncomfortable for a while at work, but realistically, I still get to keep my paycheck and it will be okay. Like thinking about those kinds of balances, because why wouldn't you want to be you? It's exhausting to be someone else. And we have different versions of ourselves, that too, right? Like you are you as a parent, you are you as a sister, you are you as a friend from college. And those can all be authentically you and just different versions, but it's exhausting to be someone who isn't actually you. When we're talking about women's bodies, when we're talking about pleasure, when we're talking about sexuality, we are talking about consent. We're talking about authenticity. We're talking about showing up <laughs> as whoever you are, you know, how, however you feel. And if you can practice that in the real world, you know, out there with those people, you can practice it in your home, in your bedroom with your partner. It all makes sense. Uh, we've reached the, almost the end. And I've just got a couple of more questions for anybody that is looking to reach you. They want to find out more about you. Can you share your website or your products or your social media handles? Yeah. So my website is sexpositiveyou.com. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. And my social media handle is Yael the Sex Geek on all the things. And in addition, I also do identity coaching, right? So that idea of authenticity, belonging, finding community is in fact something that I do for my company uh, in a company that I created, Kaleidoscope Vibrations. And that website is kvibrations.com. And I am on Instagram as K Vibrations. So, you know, I try and keep it simple. <laughs> and there, yeah, there are ways that you can find out like what, if I'm having any public workshops, if uh, you want to bring a workshop to your space, if you got some girlfriends or some friends in general that want to do something like I do those kinds of events, 
but also I do have a coaching program coming up. I do one-on-one couples and small group coaching. So there's lots of different ways. Awesome. And then I've got three, just three kind of fun questions. When you want to move your body, when you want to dance, what kind of music are you listening to? Salsa, Cuban salsa in particular, but salsa or bachata. Um, Yeah. Okay. Who or what makes you laugh? Oh, lots of things make me laugh. I'm a very smiley, laughy person. So I make my little sister laugh, which makes me laugh. She has like one of those laughs that makes her contagious and then she can't stop laughing. Mm -hmm. So she is, by the way, like 24 years old. She's no longer a child, but I spent my, our entire childhood making her laugh. And that always makes me laugh. Who or what inspires you? Oh, so many people. So I named my mom already. Um, My grandma, Betty, who was around 96 when she passed away, was raised as a conservative or Orthodox Jewish woman who like didn't get married until she was 30. And she moved to Israel and Germany to help orphan children from the Holocaust find homes, which to me is like, wow, right? She was part of social movements. She is someone who cared about people and like really led with values and was an activist. Um, And I just like was always in awe of how that came to be for someone who would have been stereotyped as not that kind of person. And then my abuela, Abuela Rosa, also passed away a few years ago. She was just so much fun. And we realized in the family that that I am very similar to her in many ways, but she was so supportive. I had my book translated to Spanish for her. Unfortunately, she passed away before the, the translation was complete, but she was just so validating and supportive and like try new things and do the things in the world. So I think the women, the women in my family, they went through a lot, they survived a lot, and they did so much to make sure that future generations, not just in their family, but all the people they interacted with would feel empowered to make their decisions. It's been just my pleasure for you to be here. Thank you so much for, for, for just joining me on, on my podcast. I've loved it too. You are great at asking questions and you just like, you're so joyful and ah, I just loved it. Thank you so much, Yael. Thank you for joining me this week on When We Speak. Please make sure you visit the website at TashaHunterAuthor.com. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, I would appreciate leaving a rating. It will help others find the show more easily and hopefully be a benefit to them as well.